Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in the midst of a hurricane. Uh, we are in Southern California and we are not used to tropical weather. So we have no internet currently as we're trying to record and uh, use our software via our hotspot. I had to pull old DVDs out of the uh, garage uh, to play for our son. Usually we have him watch Disney Plus while we're recording. So it's kind of an interesting day out here in the world headquarters of Kainos Project, right? It is, yes. And we are fantastic parents of letting the TV do the babysitting. That's what all good parents do. Yeah. Indeed. Well, if you haven't heard about this new song uh, and you have internet, unlike us, uh, you can check it out. It has taken the conservative world by storm. It was written by a guy who goes by the stage name Oliver Anthony, and it's called The Rich Men North of Richmond. And it's a song about the plight of rural Appalachian people who struggle with poverty. And really, it's a protest song directed at you know the elites of Washington, D.C., who are the rich men who live and work north of Richmond, Virginia, that are referred to in the song. And the uh, the lyrics of the song are pretty you know raw and uh, blunt. And so here are some of the lyrics of the chorus of that song. These rich men north of Richmond, Lord knows they want to have all the control, want to know what you think, want to know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do, because your dollar ain't and it's taxed to no end because of the rich men north of Richmond. And don't worry, Tamara, I'm, I'm going to bleep out the, the expletive there. Thank you. I was like, whoa, we didn't discuss this, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I can, if you want to just speak freely, I, I do have a bleep button that uh, I have prepared to, to put in post. So go, go go ahead. What would you like to say? No, no, there's nope. You're you trying to bleep my words out? Yeah. Nope. I got nothing. Are you sure? I am. All right. Well, that was your chance. Yeah. That was my chance to say as many, as Silas says, as many bad words as possible. As many bad words as you want. Uh, but this song, it's really directing uh, anger towards Washington politicians who have not done enough to support rural people who have struggled with generational poverty. And we're talking, you know, about coal miners and factory workers and welders, uh, all of these kind of classic blue collar folks. Um, There's also a faith component to this because Anthony, uh, he recently came to faith in Jesus and he is in addiction recovery for alcoholism. So his life is, you know, turning around and he credits uh, his faith for that. And so a lot of evangelical Christians have come out in droves to support him and his message against, you know, the liberal elites of Washington. Uh, But the song isn't without controversy, as we will see, because there's also kind of some racial overtones, as well as some crossover with QAnon conspiracy theories. Uh, So I want to dive into all of that. Uh, But that's what I want to talk about today, and we'll get into it in just a moment. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. So a country singer by the name of Oliver Anthony, he recently broke the internet with his song Richmond North of Richmond, which is basically a protest song against, you know, Washington elites who don't seem to care about rural 
poverty. And um, of course, there's this rich tradition in our country of protest songs talking about the plight of rural people, blue collar people who have struggled with generational poverty and uh, just are working within the system that feels rigged against them uh, as they're just trying to survive and escape generational poverty. Uh, Anthony, he's also a new Christian, and so he has been cloaking a lot of this in uh, biblical language. In fact, at a recent performance, he actually read from the Bible before singing this song, Richmond North of Richmond. Uh, And the passage that he selected was Psalm 37, verses 12 through 20. And this is actually an imprecatory psalm. Uh, And so he directed it towards kind of Washington and Washington politicians. And really between the lines of that is that he's especially directing it towards Democrats. And here's the passage that he read out of Psalm 137, beginning in verse 12. It says, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow and bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose ways are upright. But their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In the days of famine, they will enjoy plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like flowers of the field, they will be consumed, and they will go up in smoke. So that's pretty strong words directed at the wicked people uh, he believes to be in Washington. And when you dig a little bit deeper, uh, this psalm, it, it isn't really even going against Democrats generally, but really any kind of program that is more progressive, uh, like, like welfare programs. And that's kind of reflective in one of the verses of the song. Uh, here's a, a verse of the song that says, Lord, we got folks in the streets and got nothing to eat, and these obese milk and welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. So that's a kind of a pretty clear shot uh, coming from someone you know experiencing rural poverty uh, against a stereotype of someone who maybe is experiencing urban poverty. Uh, another way of saying it is that he's making this distinction between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And so there's kind of a lot going on there um, because obviously there's this coming from this situation of rural poverty. Uh, but then in the uh, in the wake of kind of protesting against that is pointing the finger at urban poverty in kind of subtle ways. Uh, and so there's, uh, you know, a lot of racial overtones with that because uh, there's actually research surveys that have found that, you know, people when they're asked to imagine somebody who's on welfare, uh, overwhelmingly, the, the surveys come back that they imagine somebody who is black, even though the welfare recipients uh, are pretty evenly spread racially. There's a, there's a bit of a racial bias that, you know, people who take welfare are lazy and there's oftentimes kind of a racial component to that. So it's, it's interesting because this whole thing kind of smacks of, you know, the sense that uh, rural poverty is somehow more dignified than urban poverty, that there are people who are deserving of attention from Washington and the people who should get less of that attention because it should be going over to the people who are are, you know, the more deserving poor people. And so, you know, welfare queens are the reason why the salt of the earth factory workers uh, can't make ends meet. So there's kind of a lot going on with that. Um, and obviously, we're sensitive to poverty wherever it exists. Um, and the uh, the rawness of emotions that come with looking at a system that feels like it's rigged against you. Uh, but Tamara, as someone who you yourself have experienced, you know, have childhood experience of poverty, uh, particularly more of a a more urban expression of it than certainly a rural expression of it. Uh, can you share a bit of your story and like how all of this kind of strikes you? Yeah. So um, growing up, my mom was a single mother raising two kids and um, she went back to get her GED. Like I remember sitting in uh, class with her while she was doing a presentation, I think it was like her finals or something for uh, her GED. And so um, the idea of living in poverty is very real for me because we often would live in uh, renting out a room somewhere where uh, the three of us slept 
oftentimes in the same bed or my brother just slept on the floor while I shared a bed with my mom. Uh, we most certainly were on some type of government assistance in terms of uh, WIC. I remember going to the grocery store with my mom and we could only select the items that were tagged WIC. Um, there and was, WIC stands for uh, Women, Infants, and Children, right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's different from SNAP, which is kind of a more broadly applied uh, welfare program, but it applies yes. to purchasing foods as well. Yes. Uh, my mom definitely was on um, various programs, but I specifically remember being a kid looking for the WIC symbol uh, or signage underneath food, knowing that those were the items we were allowed to select in our grocery trip run. Um, and we there was even a, a special store I remember we went to that had um, just about the whole store was like WIC approved. So we could choose anything from that store. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's interesting as a kid, like what you remember. Um, and I don't recall being like embarrassed of that or ashamed of it. I do remember being like bummed that there were a lot of things I wanted that didn't have the WIC identification, which meant like we just knew it was off limits. You just, yeah, you didn't get like the name brand cereal or whatever. No, no. And uh, it, it became so like ingrained in us that you would desire to get something, but you'd look at the bottom and if it didn't have the WIC logo, then you just didn't even ask because you knew. There's no would, money for it. Yeah. There's no money for it. And oftentimes you could see like the, I don't know if it was necessarily guilt from my mom or shame or what it was on her end but you could see us asking for things that we couldn't get um just brought like sadness to her eyes uh and so I learned at a young age like you I just didn't ask I didn't ask for things that didn't have the wick logo on them um so as this song is talking about like (laughs) somebody just being on welfare and like getting fat on like fudge rounds um, I'm always like offended when people speak so strongly against welfare programs because it was truly the only way my mom could survive. It was the only way she could afford to feed us. Um, and she was like a hard worker, you know, she worked two full-time jobs sometimes, but she still didn't bring in enough money to take care of all the bills to get us everything we needed. And so if it weren't for these programs that we were eligible for, um, I just don't think there's any way we could have like had the basic necessities in life. Um, And so it's interesting now, like being an adult and not being in the same situation my mom was in where like we wouldn't even qualify for these types of programs. Um, I think people feel more comfortable speaking like boldly to me about how they disagree with these types of programs, not knowing my background. And I am very much a product of the benefit of these types of things within our country. Right. Yeah. Um, That's something that um, I read a little bit about in this really well done uh, Christianity Today article where you talk about people not knowing that you've benefited from these programs and then speak ill of them and the the people that utilize them. And there was this article written by Hannah Anderson, uh, who's a woman who was a pastor's wife uh, and her family uh, was on food stamps. They uh, were making $28,000 a year. Her husband was a pastor. They had three young kids. I think one of them was an infant at the time. And they literally just did not have enough money to survive. Uh, so they went back to the church board and then they asked for a raise and the church gave them a little bit more money, but it was still like not enough money to make the math work that a family of five would have food and toilet paper and gas for their car. And basically the, the board was like, well, you figure it out. You can go on government assistance if you need it. And so they applied for government assistance and they easily qualified because they were living below the poverty line. And, uh, she talks about, just the shame she felt using food stamps there on the SNAP program, uh, especially when she ran into other church members at the store. Like she would try to avoid anyone coming to realize that she was using SNAP because she would hear the way that people talked about welfare and the people who, you know, use welfare and was very, uh, felt very ashamed by that because of the way that people felt about 
people who were using welfare. And so that was a common conversation for people to just kind of beat that dog in casual conversation. Little did they know that she was on that program. And so it was like this big secret in her life. And uh, she's had to kind of work through that shame. And in the article, Anderson, she writes, uh, quote, protests against wealthy elites and government corruption, no matter how justified, cannot ride on the backs of others who are also suffering. The price of accessing food through SNAP or our church food pantry must not be the poor's dignity and self-worth. And so, yeah, it's interesting because it's like this um, culture war between um, people experiencing poverty across racial or cultural lines um, that create these stereotypes, uh, probably on, on both ends, but really if you think about kind of like Reagan era um, welfare queen kind of stereotypes um, that a lot of people who are benefiting from these programs, not you know getting fat off of them, but literally just sustaining themselves, um, <laughs> sometimes on the backs of uh, a church not paying them enough, um, yeah, there, I think there's a lot of misconception that can go into that. And I think, you know, just kind of flippantly throwing things out like that can uh, further those misconceptions in ways that um, shows a, a, an extreme lack of empathy on the part of conservative Christians. And so, uh, Tamara, what do you think are some of those misconceptions that conservative Christians have about people, say, on food stamps, on SNAP, on WIC, and what really needs to change in our conversation around that? I think one of the biggest misconceptions um, about these types of programs is that people are just getting a free ride. People who are um, eligible for these programs are not hard workers and they're lazy people who are just getting um, free things from the government. And that is only because of, you know, the uh, quote unquote uh, working taxpayers and I I understand how government programs work. I understand how they're funded. But to suggest that people who qualify are just freeloading is really a massive misconception in regards to these programs. Because like I said, in my own personal experience, my mom was working two full-time jobs. Like there was a season in our life um, where my mom would work like a day shift and then she'd work a graveyard shift and we stayed with a relative um, for the whole week and we would talk to my mom before we went to bed when she was on one of her breaks and we cried ourselves to sleep every night because my mom wasn't there. Like we had to live with somebody else for the whole week and um, if my mom, like whatever two days off my mom had, we would, you know, go home and be with her but it was really difficult and so my mom was certainly not just sitting back and doing nothing and collecting um, free food. And I think that's oftentimes one of the largest misconceptions is that if somebody qualifies for this program, it's because they're not willing to work and they're lazy and they just want to continue to take free handouts. Um, and yeah, I mean, that just that brings so much shame to people that are on these programs that are that are in need of these programs in order to quite literally survive and get food on the table. Um, and so I think that's probably one of the greatest misconceptions that just needs to change. Obviously, the other one is something you spoke about earlier. Um, when people think about these programs, they have like a specific person in mind. And oftentimes, it's a specific race. Uh, so that's another just misconception that needs to change because it's not even based on any kind of truth when you look at the percentage of people utilizing the benefits of um, government assistance it's it's pretty varied in terms of um, the racial makeup of people participating in these programs yeah it's pretty even split across races yeah. yeah when it comes to this idea of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor um, that lingo isn't often used in the parlance of people discussing this, but it's the conception beneath what they're believing about, whether it's people on welfare or whatever it might be, uh, who have food stamps, WIC. Um, I mean, and people could like say, look to your, your mom and say like, well, she's undeserving poor. She had two kids out of wedlock at a young age. And what do you think was going to happen? Uh, right. like how can Christians like fix their thinking in, in that regard? 
I think we just don't, we don't get to be so arrogant and label that. We don't get to think that we've made the right choices to not need such programs. Um, it's a shame that we want to dissect people's lives down to the core of um, you made the decisions to get into this space. So therefore, you should not receive any assistance getting out of that space. Um, what brought somebody into a situation? It's not our place to continue to make assumptions or uh, withhold benefits, especially when the benefits are basic life necessities like food. So in the instance of like my mom to say, well, she had two kids. Um, she got pregnant at 16. Uh, she wasn't married. She uh, then got pregnant again with another kid. And that was me. Um, therefore, she's made too many terrible decisions in her life. And we should withhold food from her because her life decisions have brought her to a, a, a place of not being able to afford food. So um, sure, we could give it to her, but we're not going to because of her own decisions. Like, when do we ever see God work that way? Um, I think that's probably one of the biggest like frustrations on my end is as Christians, we're called to be people who care about other people. And uh, even as we think of like the redemption story of Christ, he never looks at our sin and says, well, you brought yourself here. I could save you, but I'm not going to save you because your own life decisions have brought you to this place. Like that's the good news is that we live in a fallen world. Like that's just the existence of our world. But there are also very independent decisions that we've made that are sinful, right? So the world itself is sinful, but we are not exempt from making daily sinful decisions. And the good news is that Christ came to bring salvation and redeem us from ourselves, like from me, Tamara, from you, Dale, uh, but also from just the hold that sin has on the world. And so if, if Christ came to do that, it is just so, um, I guess, ironic that we want to be gatekeepers of good in someone's life based on their own decisions because Jesus himself didn't do that. Um, I can't remember what verse or maybe it's even um, in like the Sermon on the Mount, but it says that we are called to forgive um, because Christ forgave us. And so first we're called to like look at the forgiveness that Christ has given us when we were not deserving of that. And out of the extension of Christ's forgiveness to us, we are then called to forgive others. Um, and so it's the same thing, like what Christ has done for you, let there be such an overflow of that goodness that you want to pour that out onto other people and not to gatekeep from like that goodness being poured out onto others. Mm -hmm. What would you say to like the people who are like, well, maybe we need to really crack down on uh, the eligibility of these programs because, you know, I know a family uh, in my church who utilizes these welfare programs and, you know, honestly, they don't need them, but they're kind of scamming the system because I can see because I know them personally, you know, I think they are lazy and just, you know, freeloading off of the system or whatever. Therefore, I'm suspicious of the programs in general. Like what what's the response to that? You're going to be able to find like anecdotes of both sides, right? Um you're going to be able to find anecdotes of, yeah, maybe you do know somebody who is, quote unquote, taking advantage of the system. Um, but then you you might actually not even fully be aware of somebody that is utilizing the system um, because they they are in need of it and they're continuing to work. So you think they don't need the system, but they do. Did that Mm-hmm. Makes yeah. sense. So, because you could be working hard and making money, but you still don't have enough. But you money still don't have enough for, for yeah toilet paper and right. food. Like you have to and choose between one or the other. Just because you are unaware of that person's like financial details, doesn't mean you only know people taking advantage of the system. Uh, and I think we have to keep in mind that these systems are put in place 
um, to assist people and they, they have the best intentions in mind and trying to become someone who then wants to completely abolish the system because you have a select few that might be taking advantage, then you're only looking at the negative side of these types of systems. You're refusing to look at the data of how great um, these things are and how beneficial they are to people who actually need them. And I haven't done enough research to actually see like the numbers, right? But I imagine there's a smaller sliver of people who are quote unquote taking advantage of the system. And that's also your perception of the situation. Um, people, yeah, I think people formulate opinions without ever fully knowing every detail of things. And they just want to be outsiders looking in and um, just throwing labels that you're taking advantage of the system and you don't really need the system. Like, how do you know? How do you know what they really need and don't need? And uh, is it so bad that we're giving people food? Right, yeah. And I think people uh, have the conception that if you're accepting some kind of government assistance, you're not allowed to enjoy your life. You're only allowed to survive. So like maybe you see that family, you know they're on government assistance and you know they're out uh, – mini golfing with their four kids or whatever <laughs> and you think like oh yeah they're on you know government assistance using my tax dollars to get their food so they can go mini golfing i can't even take my kids mini golfing this weekend because my budget's tight and like it's just like this like um conception that uh no, no one's allowed to have any kind of fullness of life if they need any kind of help like either i gotta do it all on your own if you're going to be able to take your kids bowling or on, on mini golf or uh, you're going to have to cut out anything joy filled in your life if you are requiring assistance for for food. Uh, and like that's just not that's a small vision of like yeah. the goodness that we mm. can impart to others. Uh, and in all honesty, like, are you feeling the taxes coming out of your paycheck so that someone else can have food? I don't know. And even in the song, like he talks about like your, your dollar being taxed to no end. If you're making enough money that you uh, are aware of how much tax is coming out of it, like you're probably doing okay. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, um, so I don't know. There's just something about that of like, you know, you're taking something that belongs to me and you're enjoying life when, uh, I could have been enjoying life more if I had a little bit more money. It just feels like this really like, uh, sorrowful, like zero sum game where like people who are struggling are pitted against other people who are struggling. And if we see anybody experiencing any measure of joy, we have to call it out because we wanted to experience that measure of joy. But like, it does, the economy doesn't work that way. Money doesn't work that way. And God certainly doesn't work that way in terms of the, the blessing that he can bring. And oftentimes the blessing that he brings comes through generosity. And I think that's individual generosity. That's generosity of our churches. And thinking generously about what government programs we can bolster and employ to increase human flourishing across the board. Right. Uh, just that idea of... Um I'm being taxed so that somebody else can just like live high on the hog. Like that's not the actual reality. If you even are in a position to be qualified for that, I can assure you uh, they are not living high on the hog. And we lack a mindset that is very clear throughout scripture. And I imagine a lot of it is just like of the cultural nature as well. But here in America, I think we lack the community mindset um, of being generous and kind and caring for others. Like we 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 think in I and in scripture, it the language is we. And so if we just were to adopt that type of language and to adopt that kind of thinking, we wouldn't even be upset about. Well, I could be getting more if you weren't taking this money so that you could have some beans and rice to eat today. Right. You know what I mean? It's It's such a small thing. Like I said, when I went to the grocery store and we were on WIC, there were certain things. And I understand like the different programs work differently, but we were not living high on the hog. Like we were, we were only allowed to select certain types of foods. Like we couldn't go and select like. I don't know. I'm not a steak eater, but like the most expensive steak, like that was not happening. You couldn't even get name brand beans exactly. and rice. Exactly. Exactly. Off brand beans right. and rice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of times we speak where we don't quite have knowledge and we're stingy where we should be generous of heart and in our orientation. 
Um, I wanted to pivot to some of the the different aspects of this song that are interesting kind of in a MAGA world. That's kind of part of a broader conversation. So I wanted to pivot to that, but we'll dive into that in just a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, so again, looking specifically at the song Richmond, North of Richmond, the other thing that was in the mix of this, apart from kind of the the protest song of uh, a rural, impoverished person, was this sort of Make America Great Again QAnon reference to conspiracy theories in the lyrics of the song as well. And in particular, there was this one line uh, where uh, he says, I wish politicians would look out for miners, as in like coal miners, and not just for miners on an island somewhere. And that's pretty obviously a reference to Jeffrey Epstein. And if you don't know who Jeffrey Epstein is, uh, he was this incredibly rich and powerful a connected guy. He knew people in Hollywood. He knew people in Washington. He was constantly hobnobbing with like the elites of society. And he was also a pedophile and a rapist on a scale that is absolutely staggering. Uh, and that's not a conspiracy theory. Like that actually happened. Uh, the conspiracy theory part is that uh, the elites in Hollywood and Washington that Epstein would often rub elbows with were a part of his operation. And this kind of falls in line with uh, QAnon conspiracies that uh, Democrats are part of this uh, liberal elite uh, cabal of people who are conspiring to uh, kidnap children and drink their blood and uh, molest them and all kinds of stuff like that. And so uh, this reference to the fact that Jeffrey Epstein was so rich he had a private island, he would bring, you know, uh, girls there and would abuse them is kind of a nod to this whole conspiracy that Democrats, not only are they letting the urban poor get fat off of welfare, they're also a part of this uh, sex ring and the sex crime uh, pedophilic uh, criminal enterprise. Uh, and so it's really interesting because in conjunction with this kind of rich tradition of Appalachian poverty protests, you have right alongside it uh, QAnon, and it's all kind of congealed under a banner of MAGA. Uh, and so in the midst of that, Anthony has been, you know, he's been getting some crazy support from evangelicals, even just like on the whole package of that. Um, and there was a, a bunch of tweets that were like retweeting clips of him and like uh, expressing their support from people who were, you know, evangelical leaders, pastors, denominational leaders, like all kinds of folks. Um, and I'll read you just one that's kind of emblematic of that whole thing. And this was uh, a specific reference to him reading that imprecatory psalm uh, right before singing the song. And this person tweets, uh, How many pastors uh, with the world watching would read Psalm 37 with tears in their eyes without qualification or apology? We serve a great God, friends. I love when God uses men like this to shame the cowards. God bless this man and may God protect him from the jackals. And like this really common uh, sentiment is like, if only the pastors in our churches were so bold and so honest to say such things. But the things that he's saying are QAnon. So 
that whole package together, Tamro, how does that strike you? What are your thoughts to that? This intermingling of like really genuine uh, plight of the rural poor with QAnon and then getting an evangelical stamp of approval on that. Oh, there's just a lot happening here. (laughs) As is always these days, right? Like that's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's just like the world of the internet that we're, we can see these um, like extreme thoughts um, become more mainstream, like a lot quicker and easier. Um, And I'm not even saying all of, the words in this song are extreme. Like I remember listening to it at first and it's like, oh, okay, like I'm not sure what everybody is so upset by. Um, and then like I listened to it again and like read the lyrics as I was listening to it. And I was like, oh, there's, he's certainly saying a lot about a lot of different things here. Um, <laughs> yeah. Cause you're like, all right, I'm like, with you. All right. I'm with you. And then uh-huh. he gets to one and you're like, hmm, interesting. Yeah. Well, the one on the, like um, the line that you had just read about, like, why are we not taking care of minors instead we're worrying about minors on another island? I'm not going to lie. That went right over my head at first when I heard it. I was like, I don't even know what that means. Um, yeah, it's like a reference within a reference yes. to a conspiracy theory. Yes. Um, and I did not pick up on that initially. So, yeah, there was that. Um, but as you hear this and there's just a lot of his own views wrapped up into this song. Uh, and... That's the case for a lot of songs. I think what becomes more concerning is um, how this song, I think, moved up to one of the top. I think it took the top. Was it number spot one on an on iTunes chart? iTunes. Yeah. Um, and I don't know for how long, but it stayed in the top 10 for a while uh, since it's been released. And he has just really been raised up especially among a lot of conservatives but specifically uh evangelical christians and i think that's where um the intersection of this uh cultural like movement happening from this song and why we're even talking about it on this podcast is not because um of the song itself but because now we have a lot of evangelical christians that are supporting this song um like advocating for a lot of the views on that are portrayed in this song right so i think there's like there's concerns for that especially when it comes to just a lot of the qanon conspiracy um and really the statement that's being made here from like the beginning to the end of the song there's aspects that we can certainly agree with, right? But then there's aspects that are a little bit more troubling to agree with. And as you bring in the QAnon element, you're like, man, I wish... Um, I wish just I this wish once we, we could just, leave that out of the equation. Yeah, and that uh, we wouldn't put... Um, we wouldn't use scripture as a tool to support these kinds of views and beliefs because especially when you look at psalms old testament imprecatory songs like it's important that you are understanding those correctly and not just like hurling them for the sake of trying to smash your enemies um i think anytime we want to use scripture as a means of hurting the other side or um, trying to say that we are now the more righteous side and you are the horrible evil side. Um, we forget the words in the New Testament that says our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? Like too often Christians are trying to make the battle against flesh and blood. Uh, and then we have people who will then try and like turn that and say, well, it's because there's like, spiritual demonic elements within you like but we're still trying to hurl our accusations and um like our own self-righteousness against somebody else does that make sense yeah we always conceive of ourselves as the person who should be imprecating someone else rather than we should be the ones who are imprecated and what i often 
think about in moments like this when Christians are like, yes, like we need to get them. They're they're hurting our kids like they're going against um, the middle class. Like there's just all of these like general accusations that we're trying to hurl at, quote unquote, the other side, which usually is Democrats, because oftentimes it's made into this political thing. Um And then we want to use the Bible to justify those things. I'm then pulled back to during Jesus's ministry, who is it that he was so set on speaking out against? It was the the religious teachers, mostly. It was the religious teachers. So, and even uh, as you look to the New Testament, most of the New Testament is talking to Christians and their treatment of other believers or the things that they are allowing to enter into the church, the kinds of thinking. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, you're letting heretics in. And so obviously we want to jump on the heretic bandwagon, but it is oftentimes we are called to look internally and not just externally. And I think right now we're taking the words of scripture and we're using them in the way that not even scripture used them. We're using the the mandates and the callings that are within scripture. And we're looking at judging the world based on those standards rather than taking what we see within the New Testament and what Christ has called us to do and looking internally because that's what Jesus did. He called out the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Like those were the religious leaders of the time who had the power, who were continuing to... Um, like in many ways, oversee the faith of the people. That's who Jesus was constantly calling out. He wasn't calling out the government. Right. I don't know that he ever said anything about the Roman Empire other than render unto Caesar. What is Caesar's? Yeah. I'm trying to think of another time that he made any reference to Rome. It must have been incidental. And there was a lot of bad stuff happening in Rome. Mm -hmm. Rome is not known for being like, kind and generous and abiding by the Christian worldview. It was absolutely the opposite. And for Jesus not to spend that time calling out like the rulers of the time that were the government um, is telling of what we are to be doing as well. Um, it's not to say that we shouldn't care about what's happening in our world because we absolutely should, but I think we're spending way too much time calling out the, uh, injustice, the evil and, uh, various things within the world instead of looking internally and making sure that as a church, we are upholding what Christ has called us to do. Right. And I definitely think there's a place for both. I think especially living in a representative democratic republic where we have been given the tools to shape the nation in a more Christo-formed manner uh, that's more just. Um, But yeah, certainly um, if our scapegoat is always the other political party rather than looking at what we can do as the church to positively influence things. That's where we kind of lose the plot. Right. And it's so interesting to me that of all the readings that could have taken place before, um, oh my goodness, what is his name? Oliver. (laughs) Oliver Anthony. It's actually a stage name. It's actually his grandfather's name. Uh, But all the Psalms that he could have read or any really any verse that he could have read he reads psalm 37 which is really powerful in terms of how like aggressive it is and how um it it really talks about like the wickedness and um like how god is going to deal with those kinds of people um I just was thinking like anything that you could have read, like this is what you chose to read is really this uh, idea that God is going to come and care for these wicked people. And it's not like a joyful Psalm, right? Right. Like it's, it's very descriptive in, in its um, writing and, and, 
then for people to say, like, if only preachers would get up and be so bold and say these kinds of things, it's like, well, I don't even think that's what the psalmist meant for it to be, was this call to um, God would just, like, take down all of the wicked people, and we are not them. Right. The wicked people are the politicians who support uh, right. Wick and Snap. Yes. The Which wicked, is a bizarre kind yes. of – because you can say like, oh, I don't know if this is the right policy move to uh, accomplish the goal of supporting people who are impoverished. Um, and we can have a policy debate on that. Um, but it's you're pretty hard-pressed to say that people who are advocating for those things are evil because they're advocating for those things. That's a, that's a bizarre kind of deal. Well, they're evil and they are enemies of the Lord. Which I think the the That's last claim. the last bit of the psalm really talks about people who are the enemies of the Lord, and so t- to then say it within the parameters of this psalm, um, Oliver Anthony is the righteous, and anyone who is um, on any kind of government assistance or anyone who is. Um, caring about what was happening with Jeffrey Epstein, like anyone who's caring about other people with these specific examples, they are enemies of the Lord, which I just, I miss how that can be true and how we can rally around those types of things. Yeah. I don't know if he would state it that strongly. He would probably say the people who um, abuse welfare and the, the, the people who create systems that have such loopholes in them are the enemy, the enemy of the Lord. Yeah. Okay. Because those tax dollars are coming from him and he's part of the rural Appalachian people who are the salt of the earth kind of folks. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I don't want to like paint him in such terrible terms because um, just a little I've read about him and he had this like long Facebook post like introducing himself like after he kind of had this rise to fame. He seems like a fairly sincere person who's, you know, recovering from alcoholism, has found faith. Um, so I don't want to paint him in completely, you know, bleak uh, terms. Because I think, too, the reason why the song resonated so much is because there's people in this country who feel forgotten, who are in uh, generational poverty, who are uh, struggling to make ends meet and all those sorts of things. And they are, you know, maybe uh, the forgotten people of rural America. And so I think that that's legitimate. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know how to make heads or tails of the whole story uh, just to pick out the pieces of it and kind of talk about those Um, because I don't come from a rural culture. And so there are certain aspects of this that I probably won't ever fully understand or appreciate. And so I just want to fully understand and appreciate that I won't fully understand and appreciate them. Uh, But I think one of the important takeaways as if we set aside all of this, the the stuff, all of the QAnon or what you might feel about people abusing welfare. Uh, I think uh, a takeaway from this whole mess is that, you know, people's pain matters and that there's a lot to be said that we have said on this podcast about the, uh, the plight of black and brown people in this nation who have struggled to overcome generational poverty as a result of racial injustice. And we still stand by all of that. But the fact that matters that there are other people in this country who are struggling too. And among them are the rural poor, uh, people who are, you know, struggling to, to make ends meet and the world is changing around them as we move into a post-industrial, uh, culture, um, and there's some very real concerns there as well that we should also have empathy for. Yeah, we need to have empathy for uh, the well-being of other people. But I think we have to guard ourselves from weaponizing the uh, difficult situations that others are in just because we think our situation is worse than somebody else's. Yeah. Because in the end, Christ cares for both. And we don't always have to pit like my situation is worse than yours. Therefore, you shouldn't receive any benefit because I'm not receiving any benefit. Like we live in a world where that's um, that is a scarcity mentality. And Christ wants us to live with this abundant mentality, not because we're capable of 
uh, rightfully caring for every different set of issues, but because Christ is capable of caring for um, the difficult situations that everybody enters. Yeah, and I think that's so important that we don't have to pit ourselves against others because if you're looking at you know the plight of the rural poor you can say like well you know those white people their ancestors probably owned slaves anyway so like why should we really care about that and then you have the folks on that side saying like well you have all of these urban poor people who are getting fat off of fudge rounds and meanwhile like i can't make ends meet here in the rural south or whatever and so like those are stereotypes yeah those are bad stereotypes on either side um, yes, there are obviously systemic racial injustice issues that we need to look at holistically, but there are also systemic poverty issues that aren't connected to race in the same way that affect you know rural white people just as much as uh, urban uh, people of color would be uh, affected by those things. And so I think we need to um, care about those things, one, and then two um, – understand that the the solutions to those problems that have existed for literally centuries um, they are complex and uh, they can often be attached to agendas and agendas can be weaponized and I think we see a little bit of that playing out in the Richmond North of Richmond song uh, it just in the way that is politicized in a very specific partisan way um, that I think we should be careful of uh, while also not ignoring the reason why the song resonates so much in that it is uh, uh, addressing a very real felt need uh, among a specific group of people. And so I don't know exactly what the solution is. Uh, I never do. I just like to present the problem to everybody and say, here you go. I was thinking about this and now you're thinking about it too. Uh, But I think if there is a solution to be found, then it's going to have to start with us increasing our level of compassion and empathy uh, for the pains and struggles of our fellow human beings, particularly those whose situation that we can't readily identify with. And it takes us a little bit of work to understand that a little bit better. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. No matter what you're going through, you are not alone. Sis, if you've experienced pain in your father-daughter relationship, I want you to know that you are loved and seen. I'm Kia Stevens, host of the Hope for Women with Father Wounds podcast, and I created my show to help you exchange your father wounds for the love of God the Father. Join me for encouragement, wisdom, and scripture. Just search Hope for Women with Father Wounds on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcast.